This morning we're beginning a study of Ezra, the book of Ezra in the Old Testament. So if you can turn in your Bibles to 2 Chronicles chapter 36, which is right across the page from the first chapter of Ezra, we will be beginning our reading there. Zedekiah was one and twenty years old when he began to reign, and reigned eleven years in Jerusalem. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord his God, and humbled not himself before Jeremiah the prophet, speaking from the mouth of the Lord. And he also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who had made him swear by God, but he stiffened his neck and hardened his heart from turning unto the Lord God of Israel. Moreover, all the chief of the priests and the people transgressed very much after all the abominations of the heathen and polluted the house of the Lord which he had hallowed in Jerusalem. And the Lord God of their fathers sent to them by his messengers, rising up betimes and sending, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked the messengers of God and despised his words and misused his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people, till there was no remedy. Therefore he brought upon them the king of the Chaldees, who slew their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary, and had no compassion upon young man or maiden, old man, or him that stooped for age. He gave them all into his hand, and all the vessels of the house of the Lord, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king, and of his princes, all these he brought to Babylon. And they burnt the house of God, and brake down the wall of Jerusalem, and burnt all the palaces thereof with fire, and destroyed all the goodly vessels thereof. And them that had escaped from the sword carried he away to Babylon, where they were servants to him and his sons until the reign of the kingdom of Persia, to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, until the land had enjoyed her Sabbaths. For as long as she lay desolate, she kept Sabbath to fulfill threescore and ten years. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord spoken by the mouth of Jeremiah might be accomplished, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom, and put it also in writing, saying, Thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia, All the kingdoms of the earth hath the Lord God of heaven given me, and he hath charged me to build him an house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is there among you of all his people? The Lord his God be with him, and let him go up. And now Ezra 1. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom, and put it also in writing, saying, Thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord God of heaven hath given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he hath charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is there among you of all his people? His God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel, he is the God, which is in Jerusalem. And whosoever remaineth in any place where he sojourneth, let the men of his place help him with silver and with gold and with goods and with beasts, beside the freewill offering for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Let us pray. 
O Lord God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, what a privilege it is that we can open your word this morning again and hear of your faithfulness, of your marvelous working in history, and help us this morning to learn more of you, to hear more of your wondrous works, and most of all, to know you more deeply, to love you more fully. Please work this morning with your spirit, and please allow me to bring forth the message that you have brought in this text. Please work with your spirit mightily this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So, in this introductory study to the book of Ezra, I have three points. The first of which is Ezra's context. Next, Ezra's conqueror. And then, Ezra's challenge. So those points are Ezra's context, Ezra's conqueror, and Ezra's challenge. So let's start by looking at our first point, Ezra's context. Now the book of Ezra describes much of Israel's return from exile. And this overlaps with six other books in the Old Testament. The first one is Daniel. Daniel is right at the beginning of Ezra. That's where they overlap. There's also Esther. Esther happens during Ezra. Haggai and Zechariah are prophets directly involved in the book of Ezra. They help with the rebuilding of the temple. Nehemiah happens right after Ezra. And what if you can guess the last one? It's the book of Malachi. Malachi also prophesied around the time of Nehemiah, which is right after Ezra. So there's a lot of scripture being written in this time period. The book of Ezra is particularly close with Chronicles and Nehemiah. And you may have noticed that Ezra seems to pick, off, pick up right where Chronicles left off. There's really very little difference between the last two verses of Chronicles and then the first three verses of Ezra. And if you look at those books, you'll see Chronicles is telling the story of Judah from David to the exile. And then Ezra is telling the story from the exile to the return. Now there are, of course, differences between those two books. Chronicles focuses on political events, kingdoms, battles, wars. And now Ezra is focusing much more on Israel as a religious community. So temple, holiness, priesthood, that sort of thing. And today, that shift continues. Our redemptive history has moved more to the spiritual. Today, the kingdom of God is in the hearts of men, not in the halls of kings. And so political happening shouldn't be our ultimate focus. That should be the ever-advancing gospel of Christ that does transform all of society. Originally, Ezra and Nehemiah were one book in the Hebrew Bible. And some think this is just to reduce the number to 22, which would be one for each letter of the alphabet. 
It was split up, though, in the meantime throughout church history, and today it's those two separate books. And kind of similar to that, some people think one person wrote Chronicles, Ezra, and Nehemiah. Now, Jewish tradition says that Ezra the priest was the person who wrote Ezra. And church history agrees with that. The author of Ezra was Ezra. And the Jewish tradition and many scholars also think Ezra wrote Chronicles. And in the meantime, the church has historically taught that Nehemiah wrote Nehemiah. So now we know who wrote this book. What language do you think he wrote it in? If you guessed Hebrew, you're not wrong. But you're not totally right either. He actually wrote it in two languages, mostly Hebrew, but there are two sections in Aramaic, which was the language of the court of Persia. So some official documents and stuff are in Aramaic. Now, if you're wondering, okay, when does Ezra actually happen? If you want that rough timeline, it's kind of between 538 BC and 467 BC. And you may remember last week's sermon, we talked about some of these dates. Abraham was 2000. Solomon was 1000 BC. Now, Ezra, as I just said, is about 500. So that's 500 years after Solomon and 500 years before Christ. And just for context, that's like us talking about Martin Luther. So that's a lot of time. And now to really understand how this book works, we do need to understand the basic outline of Israelite history. Around 1450 BC, which is halfway between Abraham and Solomon, God led Israel out of Egypt and into the promised land. Now, several hundred years later, the monarchy was established, and then after Solomon, the kingdom split into northern and southern kingdoms, Israel and Judah. We talked about those last week. Remember, both fell into false worship. Israel was completely after idolatry. They didn't have one good king. Judah kind of went back and forth. Some kings were idolatrous, some kings were nominal, which means they said they worshipped God but didn't really put their trust in him. And then there were some kings, like Hezekiah or Josiah, which had genuine faith. Israel was judged first. It was taken into Assyrian exile around 720 BC. And Judah also didn't repent. So it was conquered by Babylon in how many stages? Remember it was three. 606, 597, and 587. The first wave was with nobles like Daniel after Carchemish. Then there was King Jehoiakim who was taken by Nebuchadnezzar and he was replaced with his uncle Zedekiah. And the last stage, which you read about this morning again, was when Zedekiah rebelled and was crushed in 587. Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed and the prophets foretold this all. Now, when we talk about these exiles, it doesn't mean that every last man, woman, and child marched to Babylon. Jeremiah talks about this and says that many of the poor actually stayed in the land of Israel. 
Many of them also went to Egypt, despite Jeremiah's warning. Now, in the exile in Babylon, it wasn't easy. But it wasn't as bad as you might think. It's not like the slavery in Egypt that they had. Many Jews actually got jobs in the government, like Daniel. They weren't excluded based on their heritage or anything like that. In fact, the Jewish community prospered so much that many didn't even want to leave Babylon when they were allowed to later on. And some of those that did end up leaving had their own personal servants and singers. What we see is that many Jews were tempted to join into Babylonian society and to follow Babylonian gods. This is a temptation that Ezekiel and Jeremiah warned them against. If you'll turn to Psalm 137, that kind of speaks about Israel's time in exile there. That's Psalm 137, and that reads, By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down, yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. We hanged our harps upon the willows in the midst thereof. For there they carried us away captive, required a song, and they that wasted us required of us mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? If I forget thee, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget her cunning. If I do not remember thee, let my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. If I prefer not Jerusalem above my chief joy. Remember, O Lord, the children of Edom in the day of Jerusalem, who said, Raise it, raise it, even to the foundation thereof. O daughter of Babylon, who art to be destroyed, happy shall he be that rewardeth thee as thou hast served us. Happy shall he be that taketh and dasheth thy little ones against the stones. We see in this psalm that even if their physical circumstance might be bearable, it might be okay, spiritually, it's not so good. They lost Jerusalem, which is more than just a wall and a city. It's where God's temple was. It's the city of God's presence. We too see they remembered Edom mocking them and the cruelty of Babylon at the siege. What we see here is that it's dangerous to be too comfortable in Babylon. And this theme reoccurs in the New Testament. In Revelation 17 and 18, Babylon represents the worldly city. It's a city of wickedness, of debauchery, of fornication. It is the city that persecutes the saints. In Revelation 18.24, And in her was found the blood of the prophets and of saints and of all that were slain upon the earth. So too then, the Christian should not be comfortable in Babylon. We are strangers and pilgrims in a foreign country. Our home is the new Jerusalem. We must flee, then, the Babylon of this world. We must not be of the world, even though we're of necessity in it. So the question, then, is, are you living 
in the worldly city? Do my unbelieving friends and family and associates notice that there's something different about me? Are you saddened to see the wickedness of this world? Do I long to see Christ, who is our temple in the New Jerusalem? So often, we're simply content to be prosperous and moral, just like these Jews in exile. We must look for more, though. We must not be content with mere crumbs of God's blessing and earthly prosperity, when God has whole oceans of riches in Christ. Now, to get more context about this book of Ezra, it's helpful to know a little bit about Judah's neighbors at the time. And Babylon is the obvious one. But before we learn about Babylon, we need to learn about Assyria, because Assyria is the background to Babylon. Remember, we heard last week, before the exile, Assyria was this barbaric regional superpower. It terrified all its neighbors, and at its peak, it conquered Egypt. It conquered Syria. And guess which other country it conquered? Yes, Babylon. And it, even if it didn't conquer a kingdom outright, it bossed it around, like Judah. It had powerful kings like Sennacherib you may have heard of. Until suddenly it fell to an alliance of Media and Babylon. And they destroyed Nineveh in 612 BC. That was totally unexpected. That was world shaking. And then all of a sudden, just seven years later, at the Battle of Carchemish, mentioned last time again, Babylon obliterated the forces of Assyria and Egypt. The Babylonian leader, Nebuchadnezzar, then demanded that Judah become its vassal. And it took hostages. That's the first exile. And the kingdom of Babylon grew under Nebuchadnezzar, under his successors. Babylon's final king was a guy named Nabonidus. You probably haven't heard of that name, but his son's name you may have. His son was called Belshazzar. Do you remember him? Maybe reminding you of some Sunday school lessons with a hand writing on a wall. Yes, it's that guy. And that really happened. And on October 12, 539 BC, Cyrus, king of Persia, and Darius, the king of Media, captured Babylon. This is the morning after that hand wrote on the wall, as recorded in Daniel. We see then that God's judgments on a nation like Babylon always come to pass. Babylon was punished. So are you frustrated when you see unbelievers around you living the dream, even though their lives are completely sinful? Or do you get angry when you see all these authority figures getting away with their wickedness? Remember that if they don't repent, God will judge them for their wickedness. God will avenge his saints. So that leads us into our second point, which is 
Ezra's conqueror. Now, before we get into this, there's a quick note that the chronology and the dates around here are under debate. So I'm largely working on the writings of Dr. Nolan Jones in this. So if you have questions, ask me after about that. One other note, you'll notice some names like Artaxerxes, Ahasuerus, and Darius get used a lot. They're not names, actually. They're titles, like king or emperor or Caesar or something like that. So about Cyrus, the conqueror, in 559, he became the king of Persia. It was then part of the Median Empire. In 540, which is less than 20 years later, he had conquered Media, so flipped the roles there. He'd conquered Lydia, he'd conquered Elam, and for context, this is all of modern Turkey, northern Iraq, and western Persia, or Iran. It's a big chunk of territory in 20 years. And then, in 539, he defeated Babylon's army at the Battle of Opis, and then he took the city. Darius the Mede, who was a king under Cyrus, was then installed as the king of Babylon. And Cyrus continued to mop up the remnants of Babylon's empire. Darius the Mede, do you remember this guy? He's mentioned in the book of Daniel. He's the king that threw Daniel in the lion's den. And then took him out after. A couple of years after this, Cyrus becomes the sole ruler of Babylon. And then he gave every conquered people the freedom to go back home and to worship their own gods. Have you ever heard of the Cyrus Cylinder? In the year 1879, archaeologists found this amazing monument, which gives the actual decree where he's letting his Babylonian subjects go free. And it mirrors the words we have in scripture. There's another point where history points to the truthfulness of God's word. And in this decree, Cyrus allowed the Jews to return to their homeland and rebuild the temple with government money. So the first group of exiles under Zerubbabel, who, by the way, side note, is an ancestor of Christ. This group of exiles rebuilt the altar, they resettled the land, and they laid the foundation for the temple. But then there was a problem, because Cyrus eventually died, and his successor, who was named Cambyses, stopped the temple construction. So there's a big pause all of a sudden. And then that guy finally dies, and then we have the next king, Darius I. I told you Darius was a common name. This Darius is probably the husband of Queen Esther. Now, Darius, he really made this empire an empire. He made it bigger. He split it up into 20 provinces. He built roads so they can get from a province to a province. He made Aramaic the official language so everyone could talk to each other. And then finally, 
He built a new capital at Persepolis so everyone knew who to listen to. His problem was not everyone wanted to listen to him. There were these pesky people in a land called Greece. And there he lost the Battle of Marathon to the Athenians. And yes, this is that marathon. Legend has it someone ran 26 miles to warn about the army. But why is Darius so important to Ezra? What do you think? He's the guy that allowed the temple construction to start up again. And this is at the same time when Haggai and Zechariah, I told you they were in this story, they were preaching to the people to get them to restart the building. What we see then, throughout all these dynasties, kings, rulers, empires, God is sovereignly working out his purpose. So if you're saddened when you see political wickedness, when you hear of these Christians getting slaughtered in Nigeria, remember that God will fulfill his promises to preserve himself a people in every age. And that includes ours. Now, eventually Darius' son came on the throne. This guy is named Xerxes. He was rather annoyed, to put it very mildly, at the Greeks for daring to crush his dad's army. So what does he do? He pushes the nuclear button and decides to annihilate the Greeks. He takes an army of hundreds of thousands of soldiers and completely pillages Athens. At Thermopylae, 300 Spartans held out to the last man. At Salamis, however, Xerxes' navy was defeated. All these battles with the Greeks, why am I mentioning them? They're prophesied in the Bible. In Daniel 11, Daniel prophesies this, and he also prophesies that Greece will ultimately conquer Persia. And this happened 140 years later, in 331 BC, when another person you may have heard of, Alexander the Great, defeated the last Persian king. Now back to Xerxes, though. After he lost to the Greeks, he became rather depressed. And he didn't want to deal with government anymore, so he let his son take over the actual boring work of governing. This son, Artaxerxes Longimanus, which means large-handed, he's the king under whom Ezra and Nehemiah went to Judah. He's the king who finally allowed the wall of Jerusalem to be built. So are you worried about current events? Does it make you anxious when you see our world spinning out of control? We see politicians making ever more crazy and wicked decisions. We wonder where this might end. And now the Jews thought the exact same way. They saw these barbaric Assyrians, these pagan Babylonians, stripping them of their livelihood, of their land, of their freedom. But we see that God had a plan through that all. God providentially guided every battle, every coup, every assassination to accomplish his purpose. 
And so God has a purpose for all the turmoil we see around us. God is in control. We can trust in his sovereignty, in his protection. We have the same God that Israel did. So take comfort. Stand fast to Christ in these trying times. Do not let the world tempt you with its distractions, with its idols. Just as Israel needed to stay true to God in exile, so must we. And sadly, many of the Israelites continued in the idolatry that brought them into exile in the first place. In Babylon, the prophets were exhorting the people to stay faithful to God. And most of the Israelites that were still in the land of Judah were what's called syncretistic. They mixed truth and idolatry to make their own religion. Now, if they looked around, Babylon, they had a pagan god called Marduk. And Cyrus, well, he was what's called Zoroastrian. Zoroastrianism was founded in Persia. Unlike most religions, it was monotheistic. It believed in only one god, who they called Ahur Mazda. They believed the universe was divided in half. Two equal and opposite forces, good and evil. It was dualist, and you just had to choose which side you'd be on. So this is the context of Ezra. One where you have syncretism, you have paganism, you have false monotheism, all trying to steal the hearts of Israel away from Jehovah. And so too, we must stand fast. We live in a world where every form of false religion and lack thereof is trying to steal us away from God. And this brings us to our final point, which is Ezra's challenge. Because, okay, we know the context of Ezra, but what is the book of Ezra actually about? This book tells the story of how God's people returned to Israel from exile, how they reestablished their temple and their religious purity. This book is divided into two major sections. The first is chapters 1 to 6. That tells the story of the return to the land under Zerubbabel and the building of the temple. Now the second, chapters 7 to 10. This describes how Ezra returned to the land and the religious reforms that he brought. Now just for your reference, the book of Nehemiah happens after that second section. It tells of rebuilding the city of Jerusalem itself, rebuilding the wall especially. But Ezra chapter 1, 1 to 4, sets the stage for the entire book. We see that in a providential action, God caused Cyrus to fulfill these prophecies from centuries earlier and to let his people return. And now this was a marvelous event for these people. They had no reason to expect this looking around them. Except 
if they relied on the word of God spoken through his prophets. And so too, we must rely on God's word when we're faced with trials on every side. So if you're struggling with opposition or with hardship or with depression or despair, take these promises of God, preach them to yourself. We need to use God's word, his sword of the spirit, to fight our spiritual battles, to stand fast in his truth. And Cyrus' message that we see ends with a challenge. Who is there among you of all his people? His God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem. They are called, they're encouraged to go. They're not forced to go, but they are called to go. And God here, who's using Cyrus as his mouthpiece, exhorts his people to return, to uproot themselves from their comfortable lives in Babylon, where they have all these luxuries, and to go back to the promised land, where there's nothing left, it's desolate. But to go back, go back to the land of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He calls them to rebuild his dwelling place, to regain that closer communion with him through the temple. They are called to once again be a separate people from the nations. And this isn't so much this time through religious, sorry, through military or political strength or superiority. This is through religious purity. God, once again, is taking his people out of a strange land into the promised land. He miraculously enables them to leave this oppressive, hostile country. And this may remind you of something that happens earlier in the Old Testament. This is a new exodus. And this theme happens over and over in the book of Ezra. This time it's different, though, because instead of a pharaoh who's resisting God's command, we have Cyrus, who's promoting this exodus, who's encouraging the people to resettle in Canaan. Again, there's a foreign people being plundered of their wealth. The first time, it's the Egyptians who are essentially forced to give up their jewels. This time, it's the people in Babylon, both the Jews and the Babylonians who stay there, they're the ones giving, but they're giving willingly this time, of their own free will. If you look ahead in Ezra, you'll notice the people are numbered. And this should remind you of the book of Numbers, where they have records of the people leaving in the first exodus. Again in Ezra, religious laws are established, and the law is read. Just like Leviticus and Exodus and Deuteronomy, where we see that happening. And we see that Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah are in many ways playing a similar role to Moses and Joshua. They are leading the people through this Exodus, through the wilderness, into Canaan, their promised land. And so too for us, we are called to go to the celestial city. We're called to go to the new Jerusalem. 
We, as the church of Jesus Christ, we are called on a new exodus. We are pilgrims in a strange land. We are traveling through a desert on our way to the promised land. As Christ, who is the first fruits of the new creation, symbolically endured the exodus in his 40 days in the wilderness, so too he now leads us through the wilderness to our final home, which is the land where God dwells. A large section of the book of Ezra focuses on holiness. After Ezra returns to the land, he's told that many of the Israelites have married strange and foreign wives. These foreigners would bring their old idolatrous habits with them, and they would lead these Israelites astray. So after praying to God and lamenting, the congregation decides that they will separate themselves from these foreigners in obedience to God's command of purity. Today, the focus of purity has shifted from the outward to the inward. Even in Israel, though, the ultimate goal was a heart that was seeking after God. There, it was the outward law that was used as a beacon to that inward reality. Now in the New Covenant, it is shifted from physical ritual cleansing to a spiritual cleansing. And for instance, we are allowed to intermarry across ethnicities, but we must still only marry in the Lord. Now the question remains, though, are we striving after holiness? The call of holiness for Israel is just as true today as it was then. God commands us to be holy as he is holy. So did you violate God's law this past week? Did I sin in my thoughts or in my actions? Is there something nagging at your conscience that you just can't forget about. There's only one solution for you and for me. There's only one solution for the people in Ezra's day. We need to pray to our God to ask for his deliverance. We need a mediator. Then, that mediator was Ezra. Today, that mediator is our Lord Jesus. So turn to Christ. Let him cleanse you from your sins. Trust in his work of redemption. Live your life in the knowledge of what Christ did for you, if you believe. That's the only way any of us can have holiness. Not through ourselves. It's through Christ's holiness. So are you a member of that new exodus? Have you obeyed God's call to follow him? Is Christ, who is the greater prophet, priest, and king, is he your prophet? Do you obey his words? Is he your priest? Is he your mediator?
Is he your king? Is he my king? Will you and I, will we follow where Christ leads? Jesus has placed a call on our lives. He has placed this call to forsake this world, to forsake our own activities and our own pursuits, our own pleasures, our own goals. He has called us to journey to a strange country, like Abraham, to inherit a blessing. And yea, this is more than just a blessing. This is to inherit all things. As we see in Revelation, he that overcometh shall, it's a shall, it's not a may, it's a shall, inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. So make it your life's mission, even today, to follow Jesus, and in doing so, you will find rest in the promised land. Amen. Dear Lord, truly, you have given us your Son, and what a great act of love that was that you would provide that, that you provide a way for us wretched sinners to approach into your holy throne through the blood of your everlasting Son. Help us to live our lives in that knowledge that each of us here today might depend solely on the work of Christ for their holiness, for their salvation, that each of us might be pilgrims journeying to your new Jerusalem, seeking after your ways, and that you would allow us to live our lives knowing that you have redeemed us. Help us to trust in you each and every day, and thank you for your great Savior. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.